Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a return guest. I'm proud to have attorney Connie Regali from Tennessee back on the show. She was last on season two, episode 98. We've talked about a lot in the last podcast, and that was back in September. Um second of 2021. Now, I've known attorney regularly for five to six years, and she's built up a reputation for defending parents against this monster that other parents' attorneys won't go in to fight for. Now, when she stood up for her rights and their rights, they silenced her and kept her from defending other parents, which is... uh, ethical issue. And I welcome you, attorney, regularly to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. And thank you for having me back. A lot has happened since uh, last September, but I remember we had a great discussion just generally about the child welfare and really trying to engage people to become um, active in this process. Because if we don't have a critical mass of people who are speaking out, uh, we will never change it. So that, you know, the message for people uh, is not just, and I've always tried to make my message, not just for the families who are affected by family court, which is just a big freaking debt machine and government mm-hmm. child trafficking operation, but for the people on the periphery. I mean, anybody who cares about families and children as a country, as to what is happening in our country, should care about this process. Right, because it, people don't realize it until it does happen to them or they have a family member that it happens to. But even though they have a family member that it happens to, they still don't get it until it happens to them. Well, you know, we have, oh my gosh, you know, we are in this country where, you know, I say the everyday ordinary person, they just want to live a good life, right? They just want to work. They want to have kids. They want their kids to be in sports or whatever. I mean, they just want to live an ordinary life and they really have this, this false belief that they should trust their government. And let's always remember what is the government. And I say this every time I do an interview or I talk about the government, remember the government are taxpayer funded employees. They are your employees. Every police officer, every teacher, every governor, every mayor, every state representative, every person in every bureaucratic agency is your employee. Us people who are out there on the streets trying to earn a dollar and pay half of our money in taxes, we are funding this government. And we want to believe in our hearts that we can trust them, that they're there to do the right thing. They're there to do something good. They are going to be our servants. And, you know, I will say I was a government employee for a very short period in my life from 1994. Law was a second career for me. As soon as I got out of law school, I went to work in the Davidson County, which is Metro Nashville uh, District Attorney's Office. I worked child abuse. I worked domestic violence cases. And I was a government employee. And I took my role as a public servant very, very serious. And I would not prosecute frivolous cases. You know, if there was a serious case of child abuse, I had a very serious case with a baby murder. I mean, I took it to heart very serious that I was serving the public by getting this criminal off the street. 
People have got to understand though that that is an absolute rarity. That is such a rarity. And you, every time you encounter a government employee, you need to have your antenna up and you need to have your, you need to question everything. I mean, the situation with CPS is, you know, so many people trust C CPS, which is Child Protective Services, and in every state, the agency itself has a different name. In Tennessee, it's called the Department of Children's Services. Uh, in other states, uh, they have different names, and so you just kind of have to look up what your state agency is called, mm -hmm. but it all ends up in the court system, and every time they step into a case, you have to remember, every person has to remember whether it's you personally being affected, or whether it's your neighbor, or your niece, or your nephew, or or your child's baby or grandbaby, you have to remember that there's a price tag on that child's head from the day they become involved. And you have to question everything. And I don't think a lot of people do. I don't think they know what questions to ask. I know when CPS came into my house, I was just like, well, hey, look at the fridge, you know, have a seat. Do you want something to drink? I had no idea she was going to be an explosive bomb that would destroy my family. Exactly, because they lie. And the reason they lie is because they need statistics okay they need numbers so i want to make sure today we cover what they have done to me and so mm -hmm. i'm going to just kind of like get right into that and if you have questions about that it's a little bit complicated for the everyday person who doesn't have a legal background but it's absolutely frightening and mm -hmm. because of they have done what they have done to me there is not an attorney in the state of tennessee who's going to stand up to dca us. Mm -hmm. So here's, here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready because you know what? I still remember that video where you showed up late at night to be with a mother that they were taking a baby from. I don't know what attorney would show up for a family yeah. at that time of night. Yeah, that's pretty, that's true. That's October, 2020. Well, so yeah, so I'm gonna take you back to, actually I'm gonna start, I'm just gonna brush through 2014 because there's a couple of critical things that happened there. I have always been, uh, well, since after I, uh, I went back to law school late in life, I did not become an attorney until 1994. I was already 42 years old. It was a second career for me. I truly went into law with the right, with a real sincere interest in helping people. I did not quite realize sort of the role I would end up playing, but I like people, okay? I like ordinary, everyday people. Honestly, my family was in the restaurant business before, which just seems like such a big shift, but in the restaurant business, you are there to help people, right? You want them to have a good experience. You want them to have a good dinner. I like everyday people. I met a lot of people. We had a lot of regular customers and that's kind of how I went into law. And so then um, I started realizing it was, it was not such a good thing. I mean, the courtrooms were doing odd things. It wasn't like what I learned in law school. I mean, it, there was all kinds of just crazy stuff going on. And I really started becoming vocally active in about 2008, 9, 10, and started talking to the General Assembly about judicial removals, the family court. I really started ruffling uh, the fur then. And they first tried to put me in jail for contempt. And that ultimately failed. Uh, in 2012, I had cancer. They all thought I was going to die. They were all real happy about that. And then I didn't die. And so then 
I come back, you know, 2013, 14, really just full of fury, right? Because I'm like, you know what, if cancer didn't kill me, y'all can't either. So, uh, so in 2014, uh, I took on a case that was a horrific case. And it was a case that involved a child who had been sexually assaulted in a juvenile detention center in the county that I live in. And it involved a lot. It already, it smelled bad from the very beginning. We took the case on to federal court. Weird things started happening right away. I was struggling through it. That's a whole nother podcast, all the crazy things that happened there. But I just kept sort of plowing through it. So that took us 2016, 2017. We're just keeping that moving. In 2018, I had a client give me a phone call. And this is a client I had worked with before. Her name is Wendy Hancock. And she's out of DeKalb County, which is a couple hours away from me. And I had helped her before in 2015. She had called me up. We had shut DCS down. They had closed the case. They had walked away. Everything was fine. Well, in 2018, she had an unruly teenager. And he was, it's a small town. They have lots of problems with teenagers and drugs in small towns in Tennessee. I mean, it's horrible. It's, it's horrible. And they, and they don't do enough to, to uh, shut it down. So uh, she called me and DCS had knocked, came to her door. All right. So here we are. August the 8th, knock, knock, knock. They come to her door and she says, you know, I have an attorney. The, the girl's at her door for about not long. I mean, probably two minutes or less. And there's a cop standing behind her. And uh, the uh, DCS worker named Deandra Miller, Dee Dee Miller, and she, she needs to be called out by name because she needs to take the Tennessee walk of shame as far as I'm concerned. She turned to my client. She goes, I don't have to talk to your attorney. I'll just go get a court order. And she walked away. Well, fortunately, my client, who I've told her over and over, as I tell everybody, record, 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 record. Everybody now has a smartphone. Okay. So we all have a smartphone. We all have a way to document and to memorialize everything that happens. I started audio recording every court proceeding in 2008 before we all had smartphones because I had a judge call me a jerk in the courtroom and then forgot that he had said it when I called him out on it. And I'm like, this is not going to happen to me again. (laughs) So she had recorded it. So the very next day on Thursday, I did what is uh, what an attorney should do. I called the DCS office. Actually, I called the central office first. I wasn't sure what was going on, who to contact. So I call central office. I say, I know this is in DeKalb County. They're like, well, DeKalb County is managed out of Smith County. So you need to call Smith County. So I called Smith County, left a message and specifically said, and I said to them, look, we will help cooperate with you. Just don't contact my client again directly. We'll meet with you. We'll do a welfare check. We'll address any safety issues. Just don't contact. And I left a message. I left a voicemail and no callback, not a callback, not even a no. I mean, just Mm -hmm. ignore me, just ignore me. And now, and this is within their policy. And I study all these uh, CPS policies and DCS policies and policy 1412 talks about as part of the investigation process that they will attempt to resolve the safety issues with a family meeting. So no callback. I don't give up. I call, I end up calling 
Um, I locate the phone number of the person who knocked on her door. I call her. I call her supervisor. Um, I then, the next day, on no callback. Personal. I personally leave them a message and no callback. Friday, my client gets a phone call from a detective and he's because her son had taken off, right? He was 16. Oh, we don't even know what all he was doing, honestly, but the detective calls her. I tell her, you are not to go talk to the police without an attorney. So she calls me up. I call the detective back. I record that conversation and I say, you know, uh, can you tell me what you need to talk to her about? This is about one o'clock on Friday afternoon. He's like, well, I need for her to come in here. And I'm like, well, she's not going to come in there without her attorney. And he and I said, I'm two hours away. This is about one. He goes, I'm not going to be here in two hours. Now, you would think if this was so serious on a Friday afternoon, you could stay till three o'clock, right? I mean, like if the attorney's saying, I'm two hours away, it's one o'clock in the afternoon, you would stay until three o'clock to have a meeting, right? If it's important. He's like, I'm not going to be here in two hours. I'm like, okay. I said, well, uh, uh, I said, don't talk to her without an attorney. And I asked him specifically, I said, is there anything emergent that I need to go over with my client over the weekend? And he said, no, he said, no. I said, okay, well, it's not an emergency. So my client uh, and her daughter, she was concerned because her son had done some violent things. So they went to a hotel, spent the weekend. Monday morning, I start calling again. <clears throat> I call the DCS worker. I call the police officer. I leave him a message. This time he doesn't return my phone call. I call the clerk's office three or four times, right? Is anything going on? No, 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 no. So then at 345 in the afternoon, finally I call the clerk's office and they're like, yeah, something was filed. DCS came in and filed something. I was so mad. I was so furious because every single phone call, I was like, look, I'm her attorney. I represent her. We'll do a welfare check. Is there anything we need to know? We'll work with you. No, they went behind my back. I did not know how serious it was at that point. And so the next day, Tuesday, oh, I asked the clerk to fax me the petition. And she goes, okay, right? And so the next morning I call the clerk's office. I'm like, you didn't fax me the petition. She's like, I can't fax it to you. I said, okay, well, um, I'm two hours away. I cannot get there today. I have other commitments today. I'll have to come by tomorrow. And she said, okay, I call regional. I try to talk to, I make another phone call, the regional, make another phone call, social worker. Nobody calls me back. Nobody gives me the courtesy of a return phone call. This is a parent who has representation, who they know has representation, who they know has represented this parent in the past, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is, there is nothing bizarre about this so far. They know this parent has an attorney. They do not want the parent to be represented by an attorney during the investigation stage. And they ultimately said when they came to trial against me and against my client that they did not have to call the attorney back. They did not have to have an attorney's permission to do an investigation. That's what they said. So Tuesday, I like, nobody will call me back. So Wednesday, I get in my car, ultimately drive two hours just to find out what's going on because nobody will cooperate with me. I get to the clerk's office and I find out that they have filed a petition and there's an ex parte order 
to remove the children. And I asked the clerk, I'm like, who signed this petition? And she said, because it's a scribbly judge's signature, right? And she said, uh, Judge Collins. It's me, sorry. She said, Judge Collins. And I said, okay, well, where's Judge Collins? She said, Smith County. I said, well, uh, where's why where's the order recusing the judge this judge judge uh judge uh cook i think his name was yeah and she goes well there's not one well i mean i've been an attorney by now for 25 years i know that judges county judges have county jurisdiction okay you don't have state jurisdiction if you're a county judge you just do not that's the way the law is i'm an attorney i have lots of experience i know the law and i say okay and i uh, then tell my client that this, this order has question is not, I just don't think the order is valid. Besides the fact that they had ignored my phone calls, it was not exigent circumstances. Also this DCS worker that I tried to call multiple times, she lied under oath in the petition and said that the mother refused to cooperate with DCS and law enforcement. That's the petition under oath that she put before the judge, that the mother refused to cooperate. So yeah, I was upset because the, the question at issue here was not the teenager who was unruly and who was a problem, but it was her disabled 12-year-old daughter who had never been abused or ne neglected, who was on an IEP, who had never been away from her mother, who had a good life, who had done 4-H, who was in gymnastics, who had been a cheerleader, who had summer swim parties with her friends, who had a, a relative who could have taken her grandfather, would have taken her in the case of an emergency, she had family friends, that they wanted to put that child in the home of a stranger. And I know how foster care works. I know what they do. I know what risk these children are at. I know how emotionally and psychologically devastating it is to a child to remove them from their home of origin and put them in a stranger's home. I'm like, there is nothing fostering about foster care. You might as well call it stranger care. And what do we teach our children? Stranger danger, stranger danger, right? There is nothing. There is nothing that is, that is <laughs> sacrifice, you know, that is a, is, is a sacrament of foster care, right? It's like, it's people who have a 16 hour course, right? On, mm -hmm. on foster care, and then they make money to house your child. So uh, I was scared to death for her. I was scared to death for her, which ultimately my greatest fears are realized. But they then, um, I had them uh, come into Brentwood, and which is where I live. And I said, let me make some phone calls. I was, I was so angry that this judge did this too, because he actually had gone to high school with my client. He knew my client. I mean, it was crazy. And she told me some background and history about them, which made me even more concerned about what he had done. So I, I, I said, come in to town. We'll make some phone calls. On Thursday morning, I start, I had another court commitment I had to attend to and start making phone calls. And by noon, listen, by noon on Thursday, they had my home surrounded with police officers. They had put out an Amber Alert on a child who was not an endangered child by a fax piece of paper by this very same detective. I found out that that very same detective that I spoke to on Friday afternoon, 15 minutes after he talked to me, took out two warrants on my client, 
It had nothing to do with the 12 year old, by the way. It had to do with her unruly 16 year old. There was never a charge against her, criminal charge against her for abuse or child neglect of her 12 year old. Her, they had already taken her 16 year old. We didn't even know it. We didn't know where he was. We would find out he had slept in the DCS office. They had shipped him to his friend's house. Instead of calling the mother and telling her where her missing child was. Mm -hmm. And so they uh, surround my house. They pick up this 12 year old child. They ship her to South Jackson, which is on the other side of Tennessee, 200 miles from her home, put her in South Jackson in an African-American home where she's forced to sleep in a bed with an African-American 20 year old female, attend a school, which was primarily African-American, a church primarily African-American. And I mean, total culture shock, total cultural difference. There were bars on the windows. They, they had shifted her from one place to another. They had bars on the windows, needles in the yards. The, this foster parent we would find out was putting signs up all around the house. If you didn't bring it, don't touch it. They would like not allow them to make their own peanut butter sandwich because they would use too much peanut butter. They could not get their own glass of milk. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is where they place them. They did not even, DCS did not even go and check on them for three weeks. And they took the 12 and the 16 year old and got them HPV vaccines, gave a 12 year old an HPV vaccine without mother's knowledge, consent, or permission. Now, why would a 12 year old need an HPV vaccine unless you were afraid that 12 year old was gonna have sex in foster care, right? Right. Why would they need it? So I know your head is spinning right now, and <laughs> I'm sure you have some questions for the everyday person because I go through this. I try to play it out in detail one step at a time, but I'm sure you have some questions about what happened. You know, they gave no um, reason as to why they even took the daughter and put her 200 miles away. Well, so in the petition, they alleged, based upon the allegations of the unruly teenager who had already been on probation for drugs in juvenile court, they put allegations in there that mother was a drug dealer and mother was on drugs. <clears throat> now, ultimately, they did a nail bed test on mother, which came back clean. There was a real tiny low level of THC that was not even at high enough to measure, but they did a nail bed test on her, which came back clean. The allegations was she was a drug dealer and she was on drugs, which they were never able to prove. Yeah. Why is it they use that a lot, that mother or father is using drugs? This is well, because it's because it's a, it's a trigger for the judges. It's an absolute trigger. I mean, drug abuse is horrible. It is. It's horrible. I totally believe you cannot be an addict and be a parent. I mean, it's too consuming. You can't make decisions. I have defended parents who are an addicts. I mean, and I defend parents really well and sometimes too well, but you truly cannot parent and be an addict. It's horrible. The epidemic, the opioid epidemic, the fentanyl epidemic, the meth epidemic is 
horrible. Okay. It triggers judges. Mm -hmm. And if judge sees drug addiction, they just like, they don't even care what's in the rest of the petition, honestly. And they don't have to have proof. All it is, is an allegation. They don't have to have a drug test. They don't have to have anything other than an allegation. And that's the frightening part of it. So that drug allegation is an absolute trigger. Any type of addiction, whether alcohol, they're addicted. I mean, you know, they're alcohol, uh, they're drunk, they can't control their children, et cetera. Absolute trigger. And DCS knows it. They know it. You know, and the thing is that with these DCS or CPS caseworkers, you know, they're not, you know, even adequately trained. They don't have families of their own. They don't even care about the kids they're taking away. And they even treat them bad when they're being taken away. I mean, yeah. I don't know why they haven't been shut down a long time ago. Well, this particular DCS worker, she has a history. I'm not even going to waste my time on her because <laughs> I mean, she's, she's got her own history. That's very questionable, but let's go on and talk about the rest of the story. Cause we haven't even gotten to the point yet where they came after me. So, all right. So they take the 12 year old, they put her in this, um, they put her in a home that's about 200 miles away. And then we start the court process. And so in the court process, we are, um, uh, we're fighting, fighting. They won't give me discovery. They won't turn. They're trying to disqualify me. They're trying to claim that I was hiding somebody. I mean, it just goes on and on. So we, uh, ultimately we have a trial. I go on appeal. The child, the child, uh, the 12 year old in 10 months is in six homes and four schools. And ultimately they bring her closer to home. We do. I mean, I just stay on them. I even took the mother. I even had the mother while before we even had the trial. I, so I've got a psychologist to do a psyche val on her and I had her do drug screens. I even had her go ahead and do like a drug program because you know, there were some, you know, she was, she has MS, she had been using Xanax. I mean, it was prescribed, but maybe, you know, it's like, okay, so that with drinking, maybe, you know, maybe you just need to go ahead and do the rehab program and check your medication. Just, I mean, I tried to cover all those bases just so, again, I could show that we were going to cooperate. If you have a concern for safety, We'll do that. We'll address those issues. They would not accept the psyche valve from the, from the psychologist that I selected who actually had had a contract with DCS for several years. Okay. They would not accept her psyche valve. They would not accept our drug re rehab, even though there was like a detox, a one week detox, and then like an intensive outpatient would not accept that. So then they make her do another psyche valve. They never give me a copy of the psyche valve that they had her do, which was not with the psychologist, but was with the therapist. They never give me the psyche valve of the kids. And then 10 months after going through this circus, they call me up and they say, We're, we are gonna send the kids home. 10 months, all these homes, all this problem, 10 months, they're like, we're sending the kids home. And I said, okay, well, they're like, we're going to close the case. And I'm like, you're not just going to close the case. You're going to dismiss the case. So we go through this argument. They ended up dismissing the case. So that's in June of 2019. One month later, listen to this. One month later, I get a call from a Brentwood detective named Detective Lori Russ. And she goes, Connie, we have an indictment for you and your client. I'm like, okay. 
<laughs> so uh, I said, all right, well, I will get my client and I will uh, bring her to town so that we can be booked. You don't have to go haul her in from another county. I will make sure she comes in. So she, I have my client come to town. We go through the whole booking process. We get handcuffed. We ride in the back of a police car. We go through booking. They chain us to a wall. I mean, the whole process treat us like full criminals. But when, but and they won't give me the indictment. And so finally, I, you have to go through the whole booking process before they even give you a copy of the indictment. I mean, my indictment had no bond on it. It was ROR. It was a felony, two felonies and a misdemeanor, and it was ROR, no bond. And so hers was a felony for custodial interference. And mine was accessory after the fact for custodial interference. So finally I get the indictment and I go, I mean, I know what the statute says, what the law says on custodial interference. And I'm going to tell you, I looked at the indictment. I'm like, uh, this is going to get dismissed. Y'all are going to be fools, right? Mm -hmm. Because here's what they did. And here's what is so critical. The statute for custodial interference is very specific. It was written for parents and to keep parents from violating parenting plans, basically. It's about visitation. It's about, you know, taking a child out of state when there's a custody order and you're prohibited from doing that. And so what happened is in the indictment, they changed the language of the statute, the DA did. And I'm surprised the judge who signed the indictment did not catch this, but you know, they have a lot of indictments to sign in. It's not really their job to scrutinize it. It's really up to the district attorney. So the, the law says that it's a, it's custodial interference to detain a child after the expiration of a lawful period of visitation in violation of a court order. Okay. It's very specific. It's after the expiration of a lawful period of visitation in violation of a court order. There's no comma there. That's it. And so they took out all the middle language and they said to detain a child in violation of a court order. And so this is a statutory offense. Now people from a legal perspective, let me talk about this for a second. You have laws that are what I call moral code laws, right? So stealing, right? You know, I mean, those are moral codes, robbing a bank hitting somebody, personally assaulting somebody, I mean, killing somebody. I mean, those are laws that ar arise out of a moral code. I mean, they're, they're hundreds of years in existence, right? You kill somebody, that's criminal. There's a whole set of laws that, you know, in America, we're great at, which are laws that are created solely by the government, right? These are laws that are created solely by language of, of the, of created by a body in the government, such as a legislative body that are not otherwise morally wrong, right? I mean, we have a whole history of these in the United States. And so, and let's take, you know, I like to compare it to like the prohibition laws, right? Mm -hmm. If there were prohibition laws against selling alcohol, there's no moral code against selling alcohol or drinking or consuming alcohol or selling alcohol, you know, and even after we got rid of prohibition in the twenties, a lot of states still had like what they call blue laws, right? Mm -hmm. They were laws that said, oh, you can't sell alcohol on Sunday. It's like, 
Why? There's no moral code. There's nothing in the Bible that says that certain things can be sold on Sunday and certain things cannot be sold on Sunday. And so then they changed that law and they said, well, you can't sell it on Sunday before noon. I mean, how, how creepy and how, how weird these kinds of laws are, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it's like we, the government's just going to kind of micromanage our behavior, our conduct, and call it criminal. This has driven me crazy ever since I've gotten a law degree and ever since I went to law school that we have these crazy criminal laws. So this law, this whole law, this criminalizing the violation of a court order is a totally statutory, legislatively created law. There is no moral code attached to this, right? A judge creates a piece of paper called a court order, and your violation, your personal conduct that's contrary to that court order is criminal right? I mean, we've seen this with criminal contempt and all over. So this law, custodial interference, solely created by the Tennessee General Assembly, is very specific, and it says to detain a child after the expiration of a lawful period of visitation in violation of a court order. That's the way the law is written. So I know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love how they just change things to fit their own false narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it gets worse. Okay. It gets worse. And so I finally get a copy of the indictment. I have an attorney friend of mine who I've helped before. He contacts me. He goes, you know, I want to represent you on this. I'm like, great. I get my client, the public defender, because I'm thinking, I'm thinking, uh, this is a no-brainer, right? This is, this is a motion to dismiss. I work on the motion to dismiss because I'm a great legal researcher. I've prepared, I've participated in over 40 appeals. Um, and so I, that's one of my strengths is like, it's like the legal arguments and just kind of going through that whole legal process. <clears throat> and so I prepare a motion to dismiss the indictment. I give it to the public defender because they are going to try her first. The public defender prepares this motion to dismiss, goes to the judge, Judge Joseph A. Woodruff in Williamson County, who I'm going to tell you, I now I have to back up at the beginning of this discussion. We talked about me in 2014 bringing a case in behalf of a young boy, right, who was, physic who was sexually assaulted in the detention center. This is the same judge now who was involved in that case. There are lots of crazy stuff in that case. Mm -hmm. So this motion to dismiss comes in front of the judge. He turns to the district attorney and he goes, well, what kind of jury instructions are you going to ask of this? And so he gives him a week. He gives the public defender and the DA a week or so to present their, their proposed jury instructions. Both the DA and the public defender come to court and file what's called the pattern jury instructions, okay? So there's this whole book on jury instructions created for attorneys. It's called the Tennessee Pattern Jury Instructions. And these jury instructions, if you're charged with a crime, an attorney goes to the Tennessee Pattern Jury Instructions and pulls out those jury instructions that are already pre-written for you. And sure enough, sure enough, 
both the DA and the public defender come in with jury instructions that say, after the expiration of a, of a uh, after the expiration of a lawful period of visitation, as part of the jury instructions, both of them. This judge, Judge Woodruff, no, 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 no. He doesn't like that. He changes the jury instructions. He refuses to dismiss the indictment. And he says, I don't think the visitation order is an essential element. We're just going to kick that out of the jury instruction part. And we're just going to say to detain a child after the expiration of a, I mean, to detain a child in violation of a court order. He took out essential language in the statute so that they could proceed to trial on my client. With that error in mind, the jury had no choice. The jury had no choice. I challenged the validity of the order. That's a whole nother discussion about how they were able to manipulate that. I challenged the validity of the order. Judge Woodruff would not allow that to be heard and would not allow me to testify as an expert in her case on the validity of the order. And of course, the jury indicted her. And then they came after me. Well, in the meantime, they did, she was able to do a motion for a new trial. And there was another argument on the whole changing the statute for the jury instructions. This time, Judge Woodruff puts in a court order. He actually writes in the court order that if the statute is, quote, as he calls, interpreted, if the statute is interpreted as requested by the defendant, then it would not apply to DCS investigative orders to remove children. He says it himself. It does not apply. It does not apply to ex parte removal orders. And he changed the language of the statute so that it would apply, so that it would apply. Now, I'm just going to tell you, so after that, then I, of course, they tried me, the same thing. They left that language out of the jury instructions. The second thing they did is they charged me with accessory after the fact. Now, let me tell you about accessory after the fact. Accessory after the fact is a felony, and it actually says in there that you uh, hindered, hindered is a key word, that you hindered the arrest prosecution, trial, or punishment of a felon, and, you, and that you intentionally did so. All right, so they did not charge me with, with doing that until a year after the fact, and they had never even charged her with custodial interference until a year after the fact. So there was, there's no evidence that showed that I interfered or hindered her arrest in August of 2018. That was number one. The second part of it is accessory after the fact very specifically says it does not apply to legal representation. It says that in the statute. We go to court. Now, Judge Woodruff has recused himself. They've pulled in a judge out of retirement. Judge Acre is out of retirement. They get him to come in and hear the case because they want the case heard. They don't want it continued because I'm running for judge. It's in the middle of early voting. They have to bump me out of the election. They have to shut me down. And so they bring this judge in and he refuses to charge the jury with the legal representation exception. He refuses. 
He says, well, there was no notice. What well, was in the indictment? The indictment had that in there. And number two, there was notice because it was included within the discovery. They only have to be on sufficient notice. Their whole discovery, part of it was that I was her attorney. And so, and so they refused to charge the exception, and then they they changed the language of custodial interference again. And so, really, I I explained to the jury, and we played every phone message I left for them, every intent to try to cooperate with them, and they uh, indicted me, and I mean they convicted me of the felony of accessory after the fact. And then two days later, I get a fax from the Tennessee Supreme Court saying, because I've been convicted of a felony, which is now a fake felony, right? Because they had to change the law to get the felony conviction. My license is automatically suspended, automatically suspended. And so I had, I mean, I had several families that I was in the middle of represent, representing. And so here they have changed the law. Now, actually, I have also, I've done more research. I mean, and it's what, what the judge did is called a judicial and ex post facto judicial determination that criminalizes conduct retroactively. The United States Supreme Court has at least two cases that says you cannot do that. I mean, the law is clear in Tennessee. Before you can interpret a statute, you have to construe a statute. You have to look at the plain language of the statute. You have to look at every single word in that statute. So it is what uh, what he's done is it judicially judicially created an ex post facto criminal conduct. And I, t I tell people like this, let's say, OK, let's just pretend that there was still that law in place that you couldn't sell liquor before noon on Sunday and you buy liquor at two o'clock on Sunday. And a year later, the DA comes and charges you with criminally purchasing alcohol on Sunday. And you say, wait a minute, I didn't buy the alcohol till two o'clock and the law's only till noon. And they go, we don't care. We're going to change that and we're going to change it to you can't buy law. I buy alcohol on Sunday, right? I know the law. I knew the law. I was a prosecutor, okay? So I understand those parameters of the law. And they violated the, uh, they violated the law as it relates to going to get another judge secretly behind my back. Oh, I, I don't want to forget this little thing too. After they got that secret ex parte order, they actually had a hearing the following morning on Tuesday morning at nine o'clock. And they didn't even tell me, they didn't even have the courtesy to call me and say, look, we're going to get this in front of a judge. Because if they were confident in their case, if they were confident that this child needed to be removed and mother could had no defense, they would have called me up and they say, look, this is an emergency. We need to get this in front of a judge. We're going to have a hearing on Tuesday morning. You can be there or not be there because I would have figured out a way to be there. And they did not do it, would not even allow us to get in front of a judge before they would do a removal order. It's mind boggling, isn't it? It is. It is. And they can get away with it and do whatever they want. And there's, you know, judicial immunity. Yeah. And let me tell you how much effort they put into this case. Oh my gosh. 
the discovery that they pinged my phone. They put a geolocator on my phone. I mean, it was so crazy. They go through this trial. They like put up a big screen, right? And they're like, they have all these, like they have a map of Tennessee. And they have like these little geolocator arrows of where my car is driving. They, they subpoenaed my Facebook. They got 20,000 pages of my Facebook history, my messages, my all of my private messages, all of my uh, groups, all of my posts, all my comments, all my friends, right? They use this to, to invade and every single private personal thing that I was doing related to child welfare reform. They had the, the, the DCS had two people sitting in that courtroom, a deputy attorney and the, um, the DCS attorney sat in that courtroom the entire time. These are taxpayer funded employees who are not victims. I mean, they're not victims of this at all. I mean, who's the real victim? Honestly, when you think about custodial interference, you know who the victim is? The child, right? Mm -hmm. It's a child. The child is the victim of custodial interference because the child is the one who's a subject to the court order. No, two DCS attorneys sat in the courtroom the entire time, sat with the DA at the prosecution table the entire time of both trials. They had, they had county employees from DeKalb County. They had a courtroom full. They had two, a dozen people. They probably had a dozen people come in from this little DeKalb County where they had ignored every single law on the books and then come after me sitting there in this courtroom watching what was going on. I mean, there was so much taxpayer fraud involved mm -hmm. in this whole entire thing and the effort they went through. And so it was all to take me out of the courtroom. It was all to take me out of the courtroom. And uh, yeah, and I mean, then there's a whole lot more that they've done as well, but they do not want me standing up for parents in a courtroom and defending them against the corruption of the child protective services and the billion dollar budget just in the state of Tennessee. <clears throat> You know, it's so they wasted all this taxpayers' dollars having these people sit there. And, you know, how long of a day was that? Did that take all day? Both of our trials took three full days. So they're six full days of taxpayer dollars. Yeah. I mean, and that's, oh. and that, yeah. And that's not including, I have like a whole notebook over here of all this discovery effort that they went through. I mean, subpoenaing, getting a judge to sign a search warrant. Now, actually, it was not a subpoena. I want to be clear on that. They did not subpoena this for the grand jury. So there's a distinction. I want people to kind of understand how this process works. If the district attorney wants to do a grand jury investigation, they can do it. Okay. They can open a grand jury investigation and they can issue subpoenas as part of a grand jury investigation and they can subpoena records and they can subpoena witnesses to appear. And then they just to show probable cause. This was not a subpoena for the grand jury. After they had the indictment on me, after they had that, they went and asked the judge for an ex parte search warrant, an ex parte search warrant. 
They did not, here I am, I'm already indicted. I'm already as served. They, my, they did not give us notice. So my attorney had no opportunity to object to it. They do a search warrant for all of our phone records, all of my Facebook, and obtained 20,000 pages of documents. And it took them, and they would not even turn over discovery for almost seven months. The indictment was in July. They didn't even turn over discovery to sometime in January or February. Isn't there some rule that they have to do this within a period of time? Well, yeah, they're supposed to, of course, yes, of course. They're supposed to turn in all their discovery to the defendant within 30 days of the request, but no. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry they're doing this to you. Well, you know, it's, uh, they are so out of control. They're so out of control. And it's like, where do you, when do you stand up and say no more? You know, when do you stand up? And, you know, I didn't do this for me. What did I gain out of this? You know, I just gained a lot of trouble out of it. I did this for a child. You know, this was all for a child. And people, you know, there are some people who have known me, have supported, have been very supportive. A lot of people are kind of, it's just now unwinding. Honestly, I was very quiet about it made very few comments until they had my trial because I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna, they keep accusing me. I mean, they, they act locally. They act like I'm like some big threat to public disclosure. I mean, I only have like 9,000 followers personally and, you know, 17,000 in the family forward project, which is all over the country, not just Tennessee. And they, they act like they're scared to death that I'm going to do some public exposure of, of DCS. Right. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I, that I would try to taint a jury, right? And so I'm like, okay, I'm not going to give them that. They have gagged me multiple times. All the time they gagged me. They gagged me in Wendy's case. Wendy and I had done, had done some lives about the craziness that was going on. We'd done, gone on Facebook Live. She's like, mm -hmm. she's like totally open about this. And she mm -hmm. wants people to know what, what is going on. They gagged us during, her, during that whole case and so I'm like okay well we're gonna shut up for a few months and then as soon as we got past that we went back on live again talking about you know I call it donkey justice they get all up in arms about that and I'm like well you know I'm sorry but this is not this isn't you don't follow your own rules I mean your own administrative rules you don't even follow much less the law they mm -hmm. in her case they didn't give me discovery per on her personal dcs case they delayed that discovery they're also supposed to turn that over within 30 days i made that request in september i did not get it until the end of december and that's when i finally found out at the end of december that they had given this child an hpv vaccine without the mother's consent or permission here's what else i found out i found out that they jacked up the level of the children's I'm going to call it foster incarceration, but when you go and when you put a child into foster care, they, they label them, right? They're either a level one, a level two, a level mm -hmm. three, a level four, a level five, right? Every time you go up a level, your dollar, your dollar sign goes up. So when you have a level one child, which is a good, you know, well-behaved child who doesn't have any problems, right? These kids went in as level one children. And at the first foster home, that puts them on the minimum scale. To get them moved closer to their home, DCS had to up their level, double 
the dollar figure that was placed on their head to a level two to get them placed in a closer foster home and nothing had changed. So there's fraud there, right? There's fraud there. And so, and then this child, this teenage child, whom they knew, whom they knew, they had plenty of evidence. They had his, the police had his phone. They knew that he was dealing drugs. They knew that he was using drugs. They never drug tested him and they never gave him any drug rehab treatment. I mean, it's crazy because they wanted the mom to look like the bad guy. They wanted it to look like it was all the mom's fault. So they didn't dare. We also found out when we finally got the records about the, the grief that he had given him uh, about how he had caused a scene and, you know, done some other things. Uh, and then we also found out that the first two homes that the children were placed in ended up being under a special investigation for the treatment of the children while they were there. So they delayed the discovery there, which is uh, against, you know, the rules. And then, you know, when, it, when push came to shove and we were ready to ask for a, you know, de novo appeal on some of the things that we were frustrated with what they had happened, they dismissed the case. They did not want to go that far. <clears throat> so it's just... It's, it's all crazy land. And, you know, and I catch those things all along the way. And I'm just going to say, you know, there's a lot of attorneys. I, I go into a lot of small counties in the state of Tennessee. Tennessee has 95 counties. I was probably in a third of those at least, over 30 counties, a lot of these rural counties where it is like the wild, wild west. And the attorneys let DCS get away with it. They let them do crazy stuff. And so it's, it's shameful. It's shameful. And so now here we are here. I'm, uh, you know, almost 70 years old. I've never had a crime in my life. And they want to incarcerate me for seven years because of this felony. So, you know, we have a sentencing hearing coming up. We'll see how far they go. This cannot happen. <laughs> That's our goal. Mm-hmm. And it's all a time game. I mean, they've been able to drag this out now for four years. I mean, mm -hmm. this is 2018. Now we're 2022. They were able to get their conviction based upon a change in the law of the judge changing the law, not the legislature changing the law. For any of those who know your basic government, you know there are three distinct set, uh, divisions of government, right? The separation of powers, executive branch, the legislative branch, and, and um, a judicial branch, right? Judges can't write the law. And here we go. So now they've been able to tie me up for another year in the court system. If our Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals upholds the judge's ability to change the law, I mean, that will be crazy. That will be an unconstitutional act. <clears throat> and, this, I, and let me throw this in. Okay, so here we go. I'm in the middle of a judicial election. I am running against this, what I think is a tyrannical judge who treats people terribly. She was appointed and then she got an election and I, we are working it. We are knocking on doors. We have an email campaign. I have a mail campaign. I invested, I loaned my campaign a considerable amount of money because I wanted to serve the public and I wanted to show the right way to do this, mm -hmm. right? I wanted to tell DCS, you 
are not going to just get ex parte orders on fake information and false claims. You're going to protect children that need to be protected and you are going to quit punishing families and quit lying to the court. And that's why I was running. I, I, don't, I didn't need a job. I didn't need to have the job as a judge. I really did it to reach out and be a public servant. They were so afraid I would win because this judge, she was not, she, I mean, ugh, I don't even want to go there, but I was talking to people. I was at present, done presentations. I had a social media presence. I was doing Facebook uh, advertising, getting out there, telling the truth about some of the things that she had done. And they forced this trial during early election because the right in the middle of early voting, right in the middle of early voting. And then the day after the, uh, the judge who had recused himself, the judge Woodruff, he came in and watched my trial in the afternoon, two afternoons. And then on the Thursday, the day after the conviction, he went to the Williamson County. There was like a debate about part of the, the local election. He went there and talk to people specifically about how they should not support me as judge. And he is known, I now know, he had contributed to the campaign of the judge that I was running against. He had, on her first election, signed her petition. And, and get this, he serves with her on this I'm just going to call it a secret committee just because it's not publicly known. They'll go, oh, it's not secret. It's out there. You just have to go look for it. He is on a, a committee with this other judge to create and build a new juvenile justice center in my county, which is a $59 million project to incarcerate more children, more children. And to put them, and if she will adjudicate them as severely mentally disturbed, they can rent out their beds in this juvenile justice system, in the mental health division for almost $500 a day. And if they build 25 beds at $500 a day and keep them occupied because she adjudicates them as severely emotionally disturbed, that is a half a million dollars a month in revenue in revenue mm. and this 59 million dollar juvenile justice system is partially funded by private equity bonds and if anybody out there knows anything about private equity bonds it's a big deal in government investing you have to guarantee a return you have to guarantee a return so it is a cash for kids scheme it is a cash for kids scheme that is horrific. So this judge wants to build this thing and destroy families and the future. Has no morals. I, I just can't believe this. Well, I can believe this is happening because, you know, um, there was a case I was working with with a father where the judge interfered in the second right amendments. In his second right amendments and then penalized him and wouldn't give him his kid. Oh, or yeah. let him see his kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I just think the judiciary is running rampant. And it's scary. Well, so one thing, and I'm going to, 
probably not go as far here as I would like to at this time because we're still doing a lot of investigation. But the 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 intertwining of the judiciary and other activities is um, a matter that needs to be investigated. For instance, why are judges why are judges on a committee, which is basically really kind of an executive branch committee to create this juvenile justice system, right? Mm -hmm. Why would they even be on that committee? I mean, judges have a very specific role in the government. They are to be triers of fact. Mm -hmm. They are triers of fact. They are to be impartial. They are to be detached. They are to then, I mean, look at some, two people walk in the courtroom. One person said it was red. Another person said it was blue. The judge has to say, well, you know, I, I, I really have to say there's more evidence to show it was red. And here's how the law applies to red, right? I mean, just down, if you just get down to the nitty gritty, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about. If it's a car accident, it's like the guy hit me from behind. The guy says, well, he stopped too fast. The judge has to decide who was the person at fault. And here's how the law applies to that. The same thing with our families and children. Okay. And a lot of these cases, are, they're not jury cases. They're judge cases. They're cases where a judge has to say, is there... Is there clear and convincing evidence? Is there a firm conviction in my mind as a judge that this parent used drugs or this parent created a risk of harm or this parent abused or psychologically harmed a child to the level that we should interfere with their right to parent because that is a constitutionally protected right. And the government and these judges have, they've, they've, they've reduced the, the level of um, the burden of proof, right? The, that, that, what does the state have to prove? They, the attorneys are not prepared to present defenses to those things. A lot of attorneys don't even get the DCS record. They don't even have the investigative file. They don't, you know, and some of them don't do depositions. Well, I mean, the reality is money, okay? Because, you know, I'm a private attorney. I worked as a private attorney. You know, I would have to tell people, DCS takes your kids, it's going to cost you 50 grand to get them back, right? Mm -hmm. And that's if we're lucky, right? And, and, and court-appointed attorneys are not paid very much. They, they have to go against this whole government, huge government system that has attorneys and assistants and paralegals and, and investigators. They have everything on their side. And the parents don't have that. The families don't have that. And they cannot... Uh, they cannot get it, uh, get the resources together to do it. And so part of my goal, and I know we need to wrap up here. I think we've been over an hour, but bless you. And thank you for all the time today. And, but here's anything one. for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're so kind. Here's something I want to wrap up with. And this is so important. And this is where we are heading. So legislatively, we need two things. We need, uh, well, we need federally, I would say we need two things. One of them is that we need to remove 
the entitlement and the bonus money that is associated with forced adoption. And the children who are taken into care, put in foster care, foster families adopt, the state gets a bonus check, and the foster family continues to get entitlement money for as long as until the child ages out and then the child ages out and they get money. I mean, it's the, the financial incentives here are crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Even a child who's been adopted can then get an incentive money or kids who age out of foster care after they're adults, they get incentive money. We have to get rid of this entitlement incentive money. It is millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars a year of our money, taxpayer money. The second thing is the qualified immunity. From the, per, from the perspective of protecting our constitutional rights, um, I have taken several of these cases under 1983, 42 U.S.C. 1983, which are the civil rights actions, and overcoming qualified immunity is so difficult, and that mm -hmm. is why a lot of attorneys will not do it. When there is plain black and white violation of constitutional rights, and these attorneys will not do it, it's because they have to overcome qualified immunity. It's horrible and it's hard. Mm -hmm. So those two things at a federal level, I know there was a bill introduced. It is HB 1480, and it was introduced by a Democrat in Massachusetts in 2021. The bill has gone nowhere, okay? It is mm -hmm. DOA right now, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but it's still there. So it's not been voted on. And that is one thing through the Family Forward Project we need to reach out and try to do. And then our real hero in Congress has always been Chuck Grassley, who's been around forever. God bless him. He understands. He's been there. You know, a lot of times we say these Congress people have been there a long time who just become so entrenched in the bad stuff. But he has been there long enough and has seen how it's gone wrong. Because in 1997 is when we did the adoption, the Clintons did the Adoption and mm -hmm. Safe Families Act, and they're very proud of it. So Grassley understands how, how perverted that has become. We need to get rid of that. Okay, so that's on the federal level. On the state level, one thing I tried to do this year was to try to get our state general assembly to do a family advocate bill. Very, very simple because so that parents can receive the education and the information that they need right up front. They can begin to educate themselves, become smarter about how to deal with the government, how to record things, how to ask questions, how to document, um, how to not trust these crazy people because they're all over the place, how to compel therapists to work with them, et cetera. So that family advocate bill, I tried so hard to get past this year and I just, DCS comes in and lobbies against me. So we have to continue to find ways to support that and get that in place. I am not quitting just because they took my license away, okay? They've mm -hmm. actually, in a weird way, kind of done me a bit of a favor because now I'm not subject to those restrictions and I can act in a whole different capacity. And God has been very, very good to me. I've worked very hard. I've been very conservative. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I am not depending on that to eat and feed my family. So, uh, and I know I have talents and skills that are continued to be marketable and continue to be valuable to the public. So I'm going to ask people to continue to support me as you see 
what I continue to evolve into and how I, whether this turns into a political action committee, whether we continue to support our nonprofit of the Family Forward Foundation, I want you to keep your eyes open because it is not over yet. I'm not going away. I'm not quitting. I'm going to show what they have done. I'm going to point out every act that they have done. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to be silenced anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad you came on the show to explain all of this. You know, it's just a lot to comprehend that they could do this too, to you. I am so sorry. Well, you know, it's part of the journey. I don't know. You know, I have a lot of trust and, you know, I dedicate my talents, you know, to God's work. You know, he tells me every day, I just say, put, you know, put the right people in front of me give me the words to say, help me move in the right direction. And because this is so become so demonic, we are dealing with some very, very aggressive uh, demonic forces mm -hmm. that is are destroying our families on many levels. And, you know, a lot of people have become aware of it through the vaccine, through education, through sex education, that through child pornography. Those are all areas that they all kind of funnel into the same thing, which is protecting the integrity of our of childhood and protecting um, generational bonds. And mm -hmm. so this is my one little area that I know very well that I can work, that I can bring attention to, that I can educate legislators on. And, uh, and that's, that is what I will continue to do. Yeah. And God bless you in your endeavors because the legislator needs to be educated they need it as well as the Senate. Mm -hmm. Well, I still would like to have you pop back onto the show when you are ready. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate everything that you're doing. I, you know, I, I, we, we got to know each other through social media. It's been an incredible vehicle for, you know, everybody's kind of found a way. A lot of people sort of found a place where they sort of fit and and can use their talents. And I've listened to many of your um, broadcasts and I appreciate everything that you're doing as well, Mary. Well, thank you. And I have totally appreciated everything you did, especially when I saw you show up at night for that baby. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And so, okay, well, don't don't jump off. Slam the Gal is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Attorney Connie and other exciting guests. Thank you again, Connie. Attorney Connie, thank you.